Today we're starting a new multi-part Talanoa series on the relationship between the United States and the freely associated states of the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau. In March this year, the United States President Joe Biden appointed Ambassador Joseph Yun as Special Presidential Envoy for Compact Negotiations. It's a significant appointment as the world superpower negotiates with three tiny Pacific Island states the next chapter of the funding arrangements under their respective compacts, which are essentially security and cooperation agreements. Joining me is our Marshall Islands correspondent, Giff Johnson. Kia Jeff. So... Where did the compacts originate from and why? Okay, the compacts of free association with the three North Pacific countries, uh, Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands, they evolved out of the transition from a colonial status into uh, a, well, uh, uh, how do you say, self, uh, self-government independence, uh, which started developing back in the mid-1960s. And this was all part of the, I mean, we, the other Pacific countries were becoming independent of their colonial rulers in the early and mid-60s into the 70s. Um, and it was a very complicated process in the, in, for the Marshall Islands, the FSM, Micronesia, and Palau, because, you know, the United States had treated and always looked at what was then the, the United Nations Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands. It was designated as a strategic trust by the UN, the only strategic trusteeship uh, of the 11 that were established after World War II. And as such, it meant the U.S. Uh, could use the islands for military purposes and had, you know, authority uh, beyond the usual trust territory uh, situations of other countries that were under under colonial rule at the after World War II. So anyway, long story short, the U.S. had these had the dual goals of maintaining the Micronesia area under its authority. Uh, security authority, and yet at the same time, appeasing the islands and the United Nations and the world community that it was allowing these islands to make a choice of self-determination. And that's a pretty complicated and contradictory (laughs) two policies, but that was sort of where it was at. And so the negotiations kind of stumbled along as the, you know, the, the, they started in 1969 and went through all through the seventies as the Micronesian negotiators, uh, you know, were quite savvy and were able to use some leverage of the cold war between the U S and the Soviet union at the time. Uh, so they were able to leverage that. And finally, you know, began the, they settled on free association as the, the what they wanted to do. Now, meantime, the Northern Marianas, which was at that time part of the Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands, they said, no, we're not going that route. We want Commonwealth status. And they opted out, had a referendum, and they are now, oh, since 1976, a Commonwealth of the United States. And so that's why we refer to the Northern Marianas as the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas. But ultimately, in the early and mid-80s, compacts were completed for the three, what are now the three freely associated states. And 
for the for example for the Marshall well for the whole area the key point for the United States was that it had what's called strategic denial and that means the right to deny any other government third party access to the this entire area which is has a footprint over the Pacific that that's bigger than the continental US. So that's an essential ingredient in the compact still to this day, the strategic denial. Uh, and in addition, in the Marshalls, of course, it had already tested nuclear weapons at Bikini and Eniwetok uh, and maintained a long-term lease for use of the Kwajalein missile range uh, where it tests missiles. So the Marshalls has, you know, very specific issues and uh, a military site that that makes it different from the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau um, in those days in the 80s. So that pretty much is is what, uh, you know, the the the, and it's interesting too. just to sort of sum up the the negotiations is that these three island groups, Palau, FSM, and Marshall Islands, they weren't even countries at this time, and they were negotiating with a world superpower to try to determine, self-determine their future. So it was a totally uneven ground, uneven playing field with essentially with the U.S. holding all the cards uh, at that time because it was the administrator of this U.N. trust territory, had total veto power over anything the Micronesians wanted to do. Um, And one of the really interesting elements that Amata Kabua, the first president of the Marshall Islands, pushed and with very savvy negotiators and a brilliant Washington-based lawyer, was successful in bringing the U.S. on board and getting approval of this was a term that's called full faith and credit. And what that means is that the the funding that was provided to the islands, and not just Marshall Islands, but FSM and ultimately Palau, I guess, in their first compacts, the money came with what is known as the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, which means money could not be held up for any reason. It's guaranteed annually you're going to get this amount. So you could take it to the bank and and as the government did in the first years of the first compact and get a big bond or loan issue because the money was guaranteed. And Amata Kabua's comment about this was that this was a way for the islands that had no power, no authority, totally uneven negotiating position to somewhat level the playing field with a superpower by seeing that their funding was guaranteed and that the U.S. couldn't say, you know, in year seven of the combat, well, you guys aren't doing what we like. We're going to hold up your money. And that was a really interesting provision in that first compact uh, that was finally approved for the Marshals and the FSM uh, in the mid-80s and Palau a little bit later in the 90s because of uh, uh, there were a lot of uh, the Palauans had passed a nuclear-free constitution and it conflicted with the compact, which of course allows the U.S. military to, you know, transit and bring ships in that are nuclear powered and nuclear weapons. So they had to go through a lot of gyrations. But ultimately, Palau also implemented a compact in the 90s. Um, and that, those were the first ones that were for a 15 year period. 
And now the one one we're in now, the, the second compact, compact two, w- was supposed to be a, a, a transitionary um, compact. The way it was, the way it was pitched in the the early two thousands when negotiations started up on a second funding package for the compact. Because what's really important to understand is a lot of people say, "Oh, the compact of free association for the Marshalls and and Micronesia is ending next year," and that's not true. The compact as an overall treaty runs on and on. The you know as a security and and overall cooperation agreement, it doesn't end, but it's the funding arrangements that do end uh, for the Marshalls and FSM next year, and again for Palau uh, in 2024. Uh, So the second compact came up for negotiation almost 20 years ago, well, over 20 years ago, the negotiations to address what to do for the second phase, and the idea that was mostly from the U.S. side, was they wanted to find a way to wean the islands off federal grants and and federal assistance and into a new system. So it was agreed that the U.S. would would, uh, fund trust funds for all three of the islands, and that ultimately at the end of the 20-year period, because the second compacts were for 20 years, not 15 like the first, that the islands would then transition away from U.S. federal funding and annual uh, disbursements or annual grants under the compact into uh, using the, the, not the corpus, but the interest generated by these uh, trust funds that are, are invested in U.S. and global stock markets. Um, so that was the basic thing with the, the second compact, the big picture. Um, interestingly, at the during the negotiations, that the whole Cold War thing was long gone by then. The, you know, the Soviet Union had fallen apart. And so the U.S. pretty much felt they had all the cards and like they took away the full faith and credit provision without much opposition from out here. And they sidelined the nuclear provisions that were in the first compact. I mean, it was, yeah, there were a lot of issues with it, which now, as we, you know, now they've become like kind of glaring issues for people. But anyway, back in 2003, for the FSM and the Marshalls, these new 20-year compact funding uh, agreements came into play. And that's what the islands have been working on annual grants and uh, uh, federal funding from the U.S. for everything from immunizations to education uh, to, you know, basic health care type things. Now, coming up on next year and the year after, what's changed? The, the, the natural progression that you've just described there has, has been disrupted somewhat, has it? Well, I would say it's been disrupted to a great degree. And what's really interesting is like, you know, I write for the newspaper in the Marshall Islands. So, you know, I'm, I cover events and, and from the beginning of Compact 2 in 2004, 3, 4 onward, uh, U.S. officials at every, basically every opportunity, they would remind the folks in, out here that, you know, this is, we're now working toward this transition. There won't be another funding package 
once you get to 2023, uh, we transition. That's the last year of U.S. grant funding, and we transition into a trust fund, and then you work off that. And and so after about a 10 or 12 years, um, uh, various entities like uh, U.S. funded entities, uh, the ADB, the uh, you fill in the blank. Different people did studies on the trust funds for both the Federated States of Micronesia and Marshall Islands and universally concluded that the trust funds would not be adequate for a smooth transition. And as we've gotten closer to the time, those reports kept coming out saying, yeah, it's going to be a problem. There might be years where there's no money available. And if there was no money available, the governments here would collapse because U.S. funding is like it's a third of the government's funding. Right? It's it's huge. So anyway, that's sort of been in the background and it's been an issue. Um, and the negotiators out here, or leaders have been expressing concern about it for years. But the position of the U.S. is, well, we didn't make any promises that the trust fund would be, you know, like that it would take over. U.S. funding, but that it's to support and help and do its best. Well, anyway, three years ago, the FSM president, David Panuelo, uh, made the point to the to the leadership in China, and he's the one of the three freely associated states that has diplomatic ties with China, whereas Palau and Marshall Islands are Taiwan aligned. And so he told Beijing, he says, you know, we've got this problem with our trust fund. It's just not capitalized enough. And we're really concerned about what's going to happen in 2023. Well, you know, Beijing, not to miss an opportunity, dropped a $2 million donation into the U.S. funded FSM trust fund. And that was the shot fired across the bow to Washington. And within a very short time, I mean, literally a few weeks, uh, President Trump's Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, announced, we want to negotiate a third funding package. And so everything has kind of rolled from there with the understanding that the U.S. is prepared now, given that this changed strategic and political, so, you know, geostrategic situation in the Pacific with the China-U.S. dynamic playing out, uh, that the U.S. wants to, uh, you know, come back to the table on the funding. And so that's where we are right now with essentially only some very, very preliminary conversations having happened uh, on this issue at, at this point.